Good evening, I'm Christian Esquera, and welcome to this episode of After the Pact, where we get to see things more clearly, where we get a better sense of the truth. Let's begin by dissecting the news. Google has announced it will ban political advertisements in the Philippines in the run-up to the 2022 elections. The ban will run from the start of the campaign period of February 8 until Election Day on May 9. It's part of efforts by big tech companies in response to concerns and complaints raised over the years to tighten the news around purveyors of disinformation and manipulated content influencing voter behavior or even election outcomes. Tonight, we'll look more closely into such efforts and what difference they could make in the upcoming Philippine elections. Be part of our discussion. Send us your questions and comments on our YouTube live chat or tweet us using the hashtag ANCAfterTheFact. Joining us tonight is Professor Cheryl Soriano of De La Salle University's Communication Department. She's also the co-author of this study, Platforms, Alternative Influence, and Network Political Brokerage on YouTube. Good evening, Professor Soriano, and thank you for joining us on the program. Good evening, Christian. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's talk about this big announcement coming from uh, Google earlier today that it's going to ban political advertisements in the run-up to the Philippine elections in 2022. How important is this move by Google? <clears throat> Yes, so I, I think this move by Google is a response to some criticisms about um, campaign materials in the form of political advertisements that appear on social media, particularly uh, the nature of it being intrusive and also non-transparent. So when I say intrusive, most political ads naman are intrusive, including what we watch on television or on billboards because they are shown to us without us actually choosing to see it. Right? But, but um, in comparison to TV ads or billboards, there's a different configuration of political ads on social media, particularly in the sense that they are seeded on an individual person basis, for example, in comparison to mass publics that are visibly shown to everyone on television or on billboards. Right? So, so because of this particular configuration, there's been criticism that political advertisements and particularly its seeding right, can, could be influencing the shape of political elections. And that's why I think um, Google's um, move is a response to these criticisms. But they have also done this, not just in the Philippines, also in other countries like Singapore and the US. Okay, so basically we're talking here of more targeted uh, ads on YouTube, catering to individual uh, users. Is that correct? Yes, um, we know of this, of any uh, other ads, including political ads. So when you are watching a content on YouTube, suddenly an ad will autoplay. So political ads can function in the same way as, as, as such that. Um, so it will autoplay depending on what you're viewing. right? And so that is part of some of the criticisms in the sense that um, political ads, and, and the same goes for Facebook, right? Suddenly you can get inserts of political ads as you are scrolling through your feeds. So they function in a sense that what I see as my ads may be different from the ads that you see or my friends or my other networks. Also, we don't know how often such ads are actually being seen for each individual versus vis -a -vis another individual. So there lies the difference in the operation of political ads on social media vis-a-vis -vis the political ads on TV or on billboards. Or some people might argue, so what's wrong with that? They're, they're getting political advertisements even if those advertisements are curated to specific individuals. Tell us what's basically wrong with that. The concern about this is really transparency. 
right? Because when, when we see political ads on television or in billboards, it's visible for everyone to see. We practically can track or easily track what is being shown to us in terms of its, uh, uh, in terms of how frequent they are, how long they are. But in the context of social media, when they are targeted on a per user basis, it's very difficult to track it because we don't know what ads are being shown to different individuals. And so some studies are pertaining to um, micro seeding or political targeting. Um, some platforms say they don't do this, but there has been studies that are pointing to how particular kinds of content are targeting particular users on the basis of characteristics, and which kind of leads to uh, a sense of manipulating people who are inclined, for example, to be clicking on certain kinds of content over others. But isn't so that the very, <laughs> but but isn't that the very purpose of political ads to not just to influence but to also manipulate? But I guess the the, the really uh, underlying issue here is the question of transparency. To which kinds of people are these ads being shown? What for? How long? How often as well? So it's very hard to track the way that users are able to engage or view these ads in comparison to the other kinds of political ads that are more quote unquote transparent for us. So do these uh, ads on YouTube basically care about uh, facts or the truth? Let's say political ads. Mm. Well, it's a mix of different kinds of political ads, diba? Right? So some ads are very straightforward because they come from the source. So in short, many political ads are formally crafted political campaign messages. Some may insert um, certain kinds of uh, uh, well, criticism of other candidates, but many of them are more of front, front facing or showing the, the credibility or, or kind of in a more broad way showing the credentials of particular candidates. But I guess um, we can talk about this a little bit more. One thing about this is that although there are political ads banned on social media platforms like YouTube, for example, well, there remain a lot of politically charged messages that circulate and are, are continually gaining traction on the platform that are not specifically from the political actor yeah. source. Okay. I'm going to go to that because that's the, uh, the other important question that I'm going to ask. In the first place, there's this ban, very specific, February 8th until May 9th, so it's quite long. It covers basically the official campaign period for national and local uh, candidates in the Philippines in 2022. But... How do you determine or how does Google determine whether something is a political ad or can be construed as a political ad in the first place? Yes, so political ads are formal. They are enlisted in the platform as political ads. Um, platforms can generate revenue from them as political ads. So they are specifically labeled as such. They are identified who are funding those ads, et cetera, et cetera. But as I mentioned, there are a lot of other kinds of political messages that are, can also be advancing candidates that are not specifically labeled as political ads. So there's still a way to circumvent this ban somehow? Yes. Okay, let's talk more specifically about those other means mm -hmm. of uh, providing advertisement without really being called an advertisement. You can come up with a message that is politically charged or came from a different source. Uh, with deniability from, let's say, a particular political actor, right? But in effect, the objective is to promote that candidate, that politician, or perhaps attack someone else. Yes. So the purpose of a political ad in a campaign is, of course, to advance um, or create 
name recognition or push the credentials of a particular candidate so that they, this will facilitate likability and perhaps probability of people voting for that candidate. But political ads as campaign materials directly come from sources. So they, they visibly show the candidate. But political messages can get voter publics without necessarily coming from the same source, like as in our study, political brokers on YouTube. Political brokers on YouTube um, function like your regular political brokers in an in an in-person sense. Uh, so political scientists have studied them. They are like vote brokers. They are low-level in-person outreach people no, who, who function because they are very relatable and authentic. So in this sense, there are a lot of micro-celebrities on YouTube as well as other platforms that amass something like 100,000 subscribers to over half a million subscribers who are able to seed political messages or, polit or their commentaries or their political opinion construct the character of political candidates, frame issues in particular ways that can privilege candidates, can facilitate name recall or name recognition, or even, at worst cases, facilitate hate towards particular candidates. Okay. So essentially, these can also function as political campaigns. And, and they can function even prior to election time or campaign time. I just want to make it clear, when you talk about political brokers, you're, you're referring to micro-influencers as well? Yes. So uh, in our research, we tried to imagine how vote brokers or political brokers in an in-person context might um, find their resonance in the context of social media. And so we see the, the role of micro-celebrities or influencers who seem to be functioning in the same way because they are normally studied or seen as regular content creators but essentially they are functioning like a bridge we don't recognize them automatically as such but essentially they're functioning like a bridge between voter publics and political actors with political agendas okay now technically what is wrong with that because people might argue that it's freedom of expression. Anybody can upload their content on YouTube as long as they abide by the rules, right? That, yes, exactly. That's the thing. Uh, in, the, in the context of social media, we encourage anyone to be able to create content in the context of its participatory environment and participatory culture. So anyone can become a micro-influencer or an influencer at that. Um, and promote various kinds of ideas. The one thing in interesting in YouTube is because uh, the way we have understand or, or the way that YouTube has evolved in terms of its social logics that some of its content is getting to be understood as knowledge or as political knowledge. So some of these micro celebrities purport to become political experts, analysts, or sometimes to be putting forward not just opinions, but facts about particular political issues that could make certain viewers believe that what they are showing are not just their own opinion but actually facts i guess the second part of it is that they're practically um operating again um, uh, as much as they want um, without much scrutiny without much interrogation by other actors and then how do you how do you deal with this kind of uh, people because of course, the argument can be made that what makes them so different from the ordinary, let's say, bystander, your neighborhood barber who might uh, come up with opinions about politicians and pass them off as facts, right? Of course, they have a limited uh, audience, right? 
compared mm-hmm. to what you have on YouTube. But what would be a practical, practical way of uh, addressing this issue? Yes, that, that's a great question and also a difficult question to answer in the context of a social media platform that is privileged participatory culture and freedom of information and content production, right? And so in comparison to your ordinary barber or even your taxi driver or grab driver that loves to discuss politics with any passenger, for example, well, micro-influencers can, can, not all of them, but some of them can gain a lot of traction. And as we have seen in our studies, um, some of micro-celebrities can amass almost millions of subscribers and their view videos can be viewed in hundreds of thousands, even to millions even. So the traction that they can get becomes difficult to track. So what can we do? I think importantly here is for platforms, but also for all of us to be able to recognize the the increasing political role of social media micro-celebrities because they're often dismissed as a micro-celebrity or or sometimes they are lumped together as trolls, Mm -hmm. but they are public facing no we can see their faces and they they're they are compelling they are they are convincing particularly because they are able to connect to an ordinary person in terms of authenticity and relatability so we have to recognize their role because if we don't recognize their role and youtube also to be able to recognize the role of micro celebrities and the political influence that they can amass we are not going to be able to understand how people are are influenced okay. politically in the contemporary digital environment. Specifically, should YouTube simply just take down content coming from micro-influencers that are uh, propagating outright lies or untruths? For instance, revise, mm-hmm. no, no, not just revising history, distorting history. Would that be a, a good route to take? Yeah, it, this is difficult because in our research, the, some falsehoods that are advanced by some micro-celebrities are very creatively inserted into narratives of fact. So it, they, they creatively create content in a sense that they sandwich some falsehoods with facts, and these videos run for up to 10 minutes, sometimes even 15 minutes, that are very difficult to track for any platform in a realistic sense. So the question is, should YouTube take this down? I would say what might might be more uh, um, uh, productive is for YouTube to consider authoritative content and boosting the visibility of these content. So in our study, what we saw was that we were looking for history, but we found micro-celebrities discussing history as appearing, meaning YouTube giving it more visibility than other kinds of authoritative sources. It's fine to see other people's opinion, but when you're looking for particular kinds of uh, historical facts, it's interesting what the YouTube, what the platform gives to you. In short, YouTube, since it controls the platform, can basically push this uh, uh, this uh, micro influencers, this uh, content creators, propagating lies and untruths at the back of the line to minimize their audience. They can do that. Yes, they can do that. And at the same time, they can also make particular content visible and highly ranked. So that's the functioning of algorithms. Algorithms tell you what you what each individual can see, and then. Uh, there are different workings of it from search. So when you search a topic, what content do you find? 
And then there will also be a recommendation. After you click on the content, there will be recommendations. Again, YouTube decides what will be recommended for you. So in the sense, YouTube has a role in terms of identifying regimes of visibility and also hierarchizing content. Okay, let's go to that issue, algorithm. How, how far, how much do we know about algorithm? Uh, on on YouTube, for instance, the the next video that you're supposed to see based on what you saw. You mentioned earlier that sometimes you you watch this particular video, but the recommended uh, videos afterward may not have any relations at all to what you saw, right? So help us understand how algorithms work on YouTube, as far as we know. As far as we know, yes, uh, I, I I like your question because really uh, understanding algorithms is a continuing process for many researchers, particularly because social media platforms have left them as black boxes. They are opaque and generally hidden in their mechanisms. So um, uh, in short, uh, the, diff there are different studies that have tried to study algorithms. Some of them find that algorithms work um, uh, are, are modulate the visibility in terms of localization and also personalization, meaning the likelihood of content appearing for you will be something that uh, connects to uh, uh, your previous, your tastes, your previous searches, etc. And also the local issues that are pertinent for you. Um, for others, they have seen that videos that get more subscribership or watch time also get more privilege in the platform than others. But again, algorithms are continuing and then they're also dynamic. So researchers can only just try to study them, but, um, and we can, we can continually ask platforms to disclose them, but platforms can only disclose or only disclose too little about the, the real functioning of their algorithms. Why do you think they are not doing that? Being more transparent about their algorithms? Hmm. Platforms give some information, some bro very broad information, even TikTok no? uh, will tell you how the for you is uh, curated for you in a very broad sense. But I think many platforms call this their own business models. Um, so if they divulge exactly how their algorithms function, they're essentially opening their business model to all other platforms. Um, I think at least that's that, that that's what I've seen um, so from some of the press releases. Mm -hmm. So basically, it's a trade secret that they don't that they they, they don't want to reveal. But I guess also uh, in the context of a lot of scrutiny in terms of the role of platforms or for shaping political influence, mm. um, it becomes more onerous for platforms to actually disclose the working of these algorithms. Okay, if there's secrecy when it comes to how the YouTube algorithm actually works. Is there also some sort of uh, information provided to, let's say, content creators working for politicians to come up with political content? Because if it's a business, perhaps it would be logical for a platform to allow uh, certain actors or creators to get a look, take a peek into how their algorithms work in exchange for more revenues, for instance. Yes, good question. So platforms give these um, some kind of a, a broad landscape of how the algorithms work, but never in particular. Um, there's, there are very interesting studies that have uh, interviewed um, influencers, uh, micro-influencers, uh, and then they ask them what they think or how they know or what they think the algorithms work. And all of them share different strategies that they think 
uh, a work in training the algorithms to make their content visible. But again, this is only uh, their, you know, what they call this algorithmic gossip amongst them. So micro-celebrities have an inkling on how algorithms work, even though like us, like researchers, they cannot know it for sure. But because they are on there, they kind of test out which kinds of content work better in terms of visibility than other kinds of content. Okay. I keep hearing that term, micro-influencers. How basically do you differentiate micro-influencers from influencers? Does it simply have to do with the number of followers? And when you say micro, how many followers does one need to have to be considered as a micro and then influencer? Yeah. So the, the literature on micro-celebrities, so maraming terms yan, micro-celebrity, influencers, micro-influencers. Um, so sometimes I use micro-influencer more because influencers um, have been utilized for other kinds of um, media, not necessarily just social media. But in the context of social media, they, they've used the term micro-celebrities or influencers. And, and in our study, we look at those that are able to amass at least 1,000 subscribers because this is the beginning of where one can start to monetize on yeah. the platform. But of course, different studies it, uh, uh, identify them having significant following, but not like your traditional celebrities on television that have much broader kinds of following or fans. So, so, so that's basically how they define it. So, for instance, uh, the, 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 the Google ban will run from February 8th to, to May 9th next year. But of course, in terms of uh, circumventing that ban, those who can afford it, the politicians and their uh, propagandists and strategists, for example, can, can they actually dump as many ads as they can afford before the ban uh, sets in? Uh, well, I guess so. But at the same time, they can continually run their channels they can also continually run, well, uh, micro-influencers can also continually run their content because we're talking here about uh, content that's specifically declared as political ads. Um, there, there is no speak yet about the uh, different kinds of political channels. So different candidates have their own channels on, on YouTube and on different other platforms. They can continually uh, operate and cascade content. The difference with political ads is that they are ceded to people who may or may not want to view those ads in comparison to channels where people will go to channels by searching them explicitly. Kaya medyo uh, tricky yung political ads. Kaso meron yung algorithm. So basically, they exactly. can still uh, provide videos that would be beneficial or could work to the benefit of the candidate. For example, if you saw one particular video. Great point. Yes, no. Yes. So, so, so if the algorithm sees you as a potential uh, uh, interest, a potential person interested uh, in this kind of content, then uh, micro celebrity content can get seated on you to you, or a campaign channel can also be seated seated to you. So, so my, 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 which brings us to the uh, very important question here. So, what difference do you think this can make? Uh, this ban by by uh, by, by Google when it comes to political ads, given those realities that you just, you just talked about? <laughs> we have to wait and see. Um, some commentators, um, because polit bans on political ads have been done in other countries. Yeah. So um, I've read some commentaries, analysis, for example, in the American Bar Association, analyzing that, well, political ad bans work 
with some dent, but not a very significant dent if we understand the functioning of content on social media platforms. Because again, political content can continually be there even when they are not explicitly uh, identified as political ads. Okay. Uh, but by the way, is YouTube considered, uh, or does YouTube function as a platform which is uh, content neutral? Meaning it doesn't care whether you spew lies on their platform? Oh. Wow. They encourage content, but they have parameters in their um, community standards on what kind, under what conditions can a particular content or a particular channel can get strikes. So they have particular policies very explicitly in terms of sexual harassment, harassment, bullying, terrorism, nudity, self-harm, etc. It becomes a little, oh, even COVID-19 disinformation is very explicitly uh, um, taken down by the platform. But in terms of political content, I guess that's where the difficulty lies because of the different creative ways by which political content can get seeded and communicated. We're always hearing this, the, the revisionist attitude, uh, revisionist content that we're also seeing on YouTube, for instance, regarding martial law, basically trying to deodorize uh, the atrocities committed uh, during martial law, the ill-gotten wealth of the Marcoses. Is this something that YouTube uh, is actually, or should YouTube work on? Or it's something that uh, is placed in the category of a political issue, which might be uh, incendiary if you actually uh, decide to, to dip your finger into that? Yes, that's a great question. Um, these historical content make claims over historical knowledge, meaning they make claims about what has been or what did not happen, um, to the point that we have seen content that denied specifically people having been tortured during martial law or even seeds doubt about um, uh, that only uh, uh, people who disobey the government were in fact tortured. And so in, in the context of this kinds of content, because they make claims over knowledge, I think YouTube should be cognizant about the role and functioning and how its platform is able to facilitate the visibility and the continued traction of such kinds of content. But how uh, responsive is YouTube when it comes to, let's say, concerns or complaints raised regarding certain content, not just because perhaps certain content contains uh, nudity or bullying or self-harm, but let's say you want to correct an outright disinformation in certain channels or in certain videos. How responsive is YouTube in practice? Mm. YouTube has responded to complaints about Holocaust denial content, for example. Yeah. Huh? But um, as far as I know, um, some of my colleagues have reported um, particular. So you have to be very particular because uh, the, the, the working of the platform is not exactly able to track the creative ways that historical revisionist narratives can be communicated on, the, on a video a moving image and also articulated in a mix of English, Filipino, sometimes inserting other uh, uh, other languages as well. And so it's really very hard. So people who are reporting such content need to be very specific at what point in the video was this falsehood uh, articulated because not the entire video is all uh, a falsehood. So it's again, as I mentioned, it's sandwiched with truths, real footages, etc. But as far as I know, 
those those of my colleagues who have reported it um i don't think they have received a response from youtube yet but uh well we can we could confirm with them uh, uh, at this point yeah because what, what actions is, youtube has been yeah because that's the same issue raised on, uh, against facebook before even now which uh, prompted facebook to do more when it comes to responding to complaints but even then given the pace of uh, how content uh, grows and is shared on social media basically the response by by facebook is understandably if not fashionably late right so <laughs> where where are we headed when it comes to measures like this of course they are welcome but uh, whether they're going to make any significant uh, impact or even a dent as far as fighting disinformation is concerned what would be the response to that and finally siguro can also address this let's not just talk about google let's also talk about the other big tech companies whose private uh, enterprises have immense influence when it comes to voter attitude, if not election outcomes. What would be an ideal uh, cooperation you would like to see among these big tech companies? Hmm. Yes. So one is in terms of big tech companies. First, to be able to recognize how not just the content on the platform, because the content on the platform is created by its users, but how through its mechanisms, it's able to make visible particular kinds of content over others and get watched and even get traction. So platforms should be able to recognize this because at this point, platforms say, oh, we're just an internet service provider, we're just a service provider, we're just hosting this content. We're not really responsible for them. We could take down some, but well, at the end of the day, it's a responsibility of the content creators. Platforms should be able to recognize its responsibilities in terms of this. Um, and this has been articulated, not just here, but also in many other uh, uh, criticisms about platforms. But second is, I guess, for all of us to be cognizant about the continuing role of social media in shaping political discourse, particularly as advanced by actors that we don't always see as, as significant in, in, in shaping political discourses. Okay. Professor Cheryl Soriano, thank you very much for joining us tonight on the program. Thank you, Christian. We're taking a short break after the fact. We'll be right back.